Houston, this is your captain speaking with just a little flight information. We're flying at an altitude of 37,000 feet and our airspeed is 400 miles an hour. A couple little facts here, I'm packing a Colt King Cobra, that's a 357 caliber firearm with a black rubber grip and a 6 inch barrel, capable of piercing body armor at a distance of up to 27 feet, and it can put a hole in human bone and flesh the size of the Grand Canyon, which, by the way, is coming up on the left hand side of the plane, so just sit back and relax and enjoy the rest of the plane. No, not you, not you. Your organization's terrible. Should I tell you? Should I tell you? Oh, you're Boy Scout, but you know life. You know life. You know I'm totally off script right now. New side listeners, it's Sam Carliner. What's up? I am really excited to be doing another episode. I'm kind of off my vibe, as you can tell. This is the first time ever I'm recording on a weekend. But I am joined by friend of the show, recurring or, or returning guest, and student journalist at ASU, which I assume stands for Arizona State University, Ethan Pellant. Welcome back to the show. I'm happy to be here. And that is that is what it stands for. Perfect. I feel like it would have been embarrassing if I got it wrong. <laughs> so we were already talking before recording, as tends to be the case uh, with podcasting, uh, about the Stephen Donzinger trial. We're going to be talking about other stuff, but I figured while the energy is still on um, hating Judge Preska, we might as well just jump right into it. And I know you have a more professional intro to it probably than me we've mentioned the case multiple times on the show but i have not actually read extensively i read the basic gist of uh the news from yesterday i don't know if you want to like start off with what happened well there's a lot that happened uh this is this is sort of one of the sort of instances or cases where just every single aspect of the case just blows your mind in terms of just the, the sheer lack of uh, lack lack of transparency, lack of any like self awareness of people involved in the case, and just the sheer lengths that top certain companies will go to avoid any accountability. So this whole entire story starts with a company, uh, an oil corporation that was based in Texas called Texaco. Texaco operated around the world, but they had a very extensive um, operations off the coast and around uh, the sort of border region with Colombia and Ecuador, where they spent decades drilling for oil. Now, what happened also at the same time while they were drilling is they had extensive uh, spills. Um, so during this sort of period, uh, it was alleged that they knowingly dumped at least um, 17 million gallons of crude oil into the rainforest and that they purposely uh, disposed of at least 18 billion gallons or 68 billion liters of toxic wastewater. Um, so these were dumped in essentially these pits uh, that they hastily dumped. And these, these there was over 900 of these and these leached into the water uh, that the local community there used. So this, this contamination included illegal levels of barium, cadmium, copper, mercury, lead, and other metals that damage the immune and reproductive systems and cause cancer. So this community 
was utterly devastated. They, they could not grow crops. They could their economic livelihoods were absolutely destroyed, and their 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 communities suffered an enormous amount of health health problems due to this. I mean, blatant. It's very. It's known. They they there's plenty of internal documents from uh, Texaco at the time that they were knowing. They knew what they were disposing of, and were doing it because they didn't. They didn't think that. Well, they knew that the Ecuadorian government at the time would not care, and that it was an indigenous community that many people would really not care about. However, um, this community was able to find a champ, find a champions, and also themselves were able to sort of. Or they did not have the funds, obviously, to fund a giant lawsuit, but they worked with outside organizations, so NGOs, um, outside lawyers, including Donster at the time starting in 1993 to organize sort of a community lawsuit that named the entire community as plaintiffs against uh, Texaco. Now, Texaco was acquired in 2003 by Chevron, so Chevron essentially inherited the case. Now, Chevron, once the case actually proceeded trial, actually attempt, said that they wanted the, the trial to be in Ecuador. They, they said that Ecuadorian courts would be uh, more, more impartial than the United States. So they wanted... Uh, that's important to remember is that Chevron wanted the case to originally be in Ecuador. So this trial officially really got its start in 2003, but it took another eight years for it to finally reach a conclusion in 2011 when a Ecuadorian court ruled a $19 billion judgment against Chevron Corporation in damages. Now, this eventually was reduced down to $9.3 billion in 2013 by another court. Now, this is where we get into the current modern story, or the current like sort of story that we've all been seeing. Chevron vowed never to pay. They sold all of their assets and completely left the country. So Chevron is important. The people who've been who've obviously this is a very terrible thing that's happened in Johnstown, but also this community has received zero dollars. They've not received a single a single dollar of what they're owed, and Chevron has not paid anything for what they did. So Chevron left the country, and internal documents vowed that they would they would destroy Donziger, and that they would do everything they could to demonize and malign him. So that's sort of so so clearly Chevron found their target, sort of who they were going to punish for this, and also never pay. So they launched a they launched a massive campaign of harassment and and demonization against Donziger. They it's it just so much. So they first hired private detectives from one of the world's most notorious law firm. Uh, these are called, this firm is called a corporate rescue strategist, which, you know, sounds like the sort of, sort of the thing that's like who you call when you need to bust a union. Um, but this, this, uh, it wasn't called, McKinsey it, though, right? Like no, it wasn't McKinsey. It wasn't McKinsey. Wasn't <laughs> Uh, it was it was Gibson Dunn and Crutcher, so it's an English uh, English firm. So the High Court of England has censured Gibson Dunn for fabricating evidence. Judges in California, Montana, and New York have censured Gibson Dunn for witness tampering, obstruction, intimidation, and legal thuggery. So really, uh, great great uh, organization that Chevron was working with. Uh, Ecuador before the case uh, eventually reached its conclusion. Gibson Dunn lawyers threatened judges with jail if they if they ruled against Chevron. 
So what this firm essentially devised as a strategy for Chevron was that was what that they would charge or they would say that they were bringing a RICO or racketeering lawsuit against Dodinger. And what they allege is that Dodinger and sort of his his fellow attorneys bribed a judge, not not the judge in the case that brought the nineteen billion dollar judgment, but that they bribed another judge to write to allow them to ghostwrite a sort of uh, piece that would be presented in the court as an impartial analysis. This piece that was presented in court was very important in, in the conclusion of the case. It essentially was uh, alleging sort of Chevron's culpability and the legal precedent that could be used to actually hold them liable. So this was a very important part as what they alleged is that they paid $300,000 to a judge to write this and then but then to present it as if he wrote it. Okay. So this was a serious alleged crime, and this is what basically all of Chevron is, the whole thing of not paying and attacking Dodgers, they they allowed this, this was the massive fraud. Now, this person, this individual, is named Alberto Guerrero. I will get back to Alberto Guerrero, but this is this is their entire case. This is everything right here on this one guy of what he what this former judge is saying. Now the consequences for Dodger of this entire case has been very devastating for him and of course for the community as they have not received anything the initial trial like, was, sorry i want to interject just because like they're dying of cancer like yeah, like I, the the pollution i don't have the numbers off like i don't know if you do but like i do just want to interject that like the pollution has caused like massive birth defects cancer rate spikes uh in this indigenous community that was just completely polluted yeah, and also they can't, they don't have any economic, uh, like they have no livelihood. So this this was the money that was going to go to them was going to help them rebuild their lives. And also was, I, and it was going to be good, it was going to be a good price for them. And there's so many ways that this would have been a good judgment to bring against Chevron is it would have actually set some kind of international precedent for holding, holding these sort of companies accountable. So the trial... The initial, so there's, there's been two trials that Donsinger has taken part in after this. The first one was with a judge, Lewis Kaplan, where, and this is where um, his troubles sort of started. So Kaplan was very hostile to, to Donsinger, but he was very friendly with Chevron. Now, Kaplan, during the trial and before the trial, has talked about how much he loved Chevron, how much they contributed to the U.S. economy, and just how much of a good relationship he has with the, with the company. So, not exactly. He's not been. He's been very. He's been very biased. He was very biased during the trial, and this I think really shows this this, this conduct of both Chevron and him during the trial. So, even though, and I'm now getting to Guerrero. Guerrero isn't. Is the peak of an unreliable witness. For one thing, he's admitted he's lied on multiple occasions. Uh, in a in a separate in a separate uh, arbit uh, arbitration tribunal, he said, "Yes, sir, I lied there." When he was asked if he if he actually received three hundred thousand dollars from Dozinger, so he said that he lied that he received received the bribe that is actually the entire center point of the campaign against Dozinger. Also. He's received he receives at least twelve thousand dollars a month from Chevron, and in total has received at least 
of we know one million dollars so three times more than three times the amount that is alleged that he was bribed from Chevron also he receives health care from them he received a car and he received and he and Chevron assisted him with him and his and most of his family emigrating to the United States also he self-admitted multiple times that he only had, when he was approached by Chevron, he only had $154 from his bank account and he owed hundreds of thousands of dollars in debts. So th this is like this guy, this 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 judge, it is who is the centerpiece of the entire trial. He is in massive debt, is receiving money from one of from one of the parties in the trial, and yet somehow this is this this judge takes his testimony and uses it to convict Dozier because Chevron dropped their so dro do Chevron initially said they were going to sue Dozier for sixty billion dollars of damages. However, a few few days before the trial, they dropped the monetary monetary amount. You don't know why they did that? Because it didn't need a jury. So, because this was a civil trial with no monetary no monetary uh, judgment sought. It meant that Kaplan was the only one who was making a judgment now because there was no need for a jury. So essentially, Dozinger was convicted of and convicted of contempt of court, lost his license and was disbarred, and then was further prosecuted simply because this one judge decided, that, oh, I believe this guy, even though he is completely unreliable, I believe, of Ortegura. And therefore, Dozinger is guilty. And so now we get in, into the next portion, which is uh, the Judge Kaplan tried, and Chevron tried to lobby and get the uh, DOJ office in New York to prosecute uh, prosecute Dozinger for contempt of court. Um, so, but U.S. U.S. Uh, DOJ refuses. Does they don't want to take the case? Clearly, this. I mean. Just thinking, like as an outside observer, like say someone who doesn't have a leg in this, would you take a trial? Would you take a trial and try to prosecute someone where your only only evidence, where your only entire case rests around an extremely unreliable witness? No, and that's why the U.S. government did not take the case. However, Kaplan then appointed private prosecutors from a firm, uh, which is linked. And has financial has financial relationship with Chevron to prosecute Dozinger with a judge that Kaplan self appoints. This is Judge Prescott. So this is someone that has a direct relationship with Judge Kaplan. So he didn't even, he didn't even go through the typical process of having a, having the U.S. government or or an entity actually appoint a judge. He just he just did it himself. And I sorry, I want to interject again to just like clarify for listeners that this stuff is also like very public. Like it, it's yeah. very easy to find all of these conflicts of interests. They don't really, and I think you sort of mentioned this, that like none of these actors are really hiding anything. No, they just are that shameless and I guess confident that they're gonna get away with it. Anyway. Well, I mean, yeah, because they're still using Guerrero as the key witness, even though he said he's lied. Like he said, self-admitted multiple times that he's lied, and he's receiving tens of thousands of dollars a month and over a million dollars from Chevron. Like, how is it that anyone, any reasonable person, would say, "Hmm, is the person who's receiving millions of dollars 
going to really be an impartial witness. And then he's also, even even though, I mean, he's also just a bad paid off witness, considering he has self-admitted he's lied multiple times in in courts. When he, honestly, like, if you're, if you're being paid off, don't admit you're being paid off. Like, don't admit. <laughs> I'm actually surprised. Are they, like, they're still paying him, right? Yeah, they still are. Yeah, I don't know why they would, I mean, I guess maybe they have to. I don't know. I, I feel like once they admit that they lied, I, if I was Chevron, I would stop paying him. Not that that's really the point. I'm not rooting for Chevron. This is, this is this is how Sam would run his corrupt international business. I would be a great paying. capitalist if I didn't have a heart. I would be really good at it, <laughs> I think. Yeah, so that is essentially, so now we get to the, the current sort of day, which was yesterday, where uh, he was sentenced for six months, six months in uh, prison for contempt of court. Now he's still appealing. And also... He, but he's already been under house arrest for two to three years now. And he, I, lost, he was disbarred too, right? Yeah, he was also disbarred. So he, like, he lost his license. He was disbarred. He's been under house arrest for three years. And now he's going to jail unless okay. his appeal goes. So, sorry, I want to add um, one more thing because like, yeah, the, the sentencing was, well, as of recording this on Saturday, it was yesterday, Friday. Um, and it, I think, I forget when exactly in the week, but like earlier this week, like I think two or three days before he was sentenced. Oh yes, I, I forgot to add that, I was going to say. Yeah, I know. The UN ruled that this whole um, attack on him, pr prosecution, I, I don't know the court terms, but whatever the official term is, the UN determined that it violates his right to a, free, a fair trial, right to um, a jury of his peers, I think. Yes. Or right to a non-biased judge. Again, I'm blanking on the official legal terms, but essentially the, the gist is that the UN very publicly ruled that uh, his rights um, were violated. This is very much not a thing that should be going on. And I think that the U.S. owes him money. Um, yeah, the so city was owed repatriation re yeah. sense for being illegally prosecuted. Now the thing is too, he shouldn't even have like really this 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 whole criminal contempt charge is also completely ridiculous too. And I didn't even get into that. I'll get into that real quick. So this was a civil trial. And yet and you barely ever see criminal charges actually brought in a in a civil trial. But so Kaplan essentially said and try and Chevron Chevron said that they wanted to access to all of Dodge and Dirt's devices, so they wanted access to his phone, his computer, basically all of his records. Now, Dodge had already been very compliant in sharing extensive amounts of, of documents and stuff that Chevron was requesting, but they were essentially now asking to access everything that Dodge had. When and Dodge obviously, I mean, you think, and this is like a basic thing. Like this is even something that like someone that has to go to law school to understand is if you're like asking that you want access to all of someone's piercing you froze you were frozen they're asking to have access oh okay all right now you're good Am I back? again yeah okay where, where did they cut off um you were just getting into how if they're trying to get access to all of someone's stuff yeah okay so they're trying to get access to this personal communication devices but he's saying I mean, obviously, that's going to violate attorney-client privilege. You can't 
ask a lawyer to access their, it's very difficult to ask a lawyer to access their communications with their clients. And that's the, that's a basic principle. Now Kaplan just essentially said, no, you have to do it. And even though, so Dodgeinger was trying to appeal that to another, uh, to, a, to a higher court. And even though he was waiting an appeal, Kaplan charged him with criminal contempt of court for non-compliance as he's doing an appeal. So that's that's why he's being in jail. That's why he's in jail is because he's not compli- he's not complying with what would clearly be a, a something that no lawyer would would should comply with. Hmm. And yeah, I mean, is I don't know if there's any more about the trial specifically you were going to add. I have my own thoughts, but I want to wait. No, no, that's that's mostly like sort of like the back. That's like the background of the case. I mean, there's so much. There's, I'll get into it as we sort of do discussion, but there's just lots of things that Chevron's pulled over the last ten years that are just that are range from funny to just depressing. Well, I mean, I'm just thinking of like the implications, which are so. There's multiple things. For yes. one thing, this keeps them from the it. Donziger. Uh, is a distraction and this is a thing that I actually to his credit he has even as he's being attacked uh, he has brought up time and again that he's being used as a distraction from the original crime which is that Chevron or at the time Texaco uh, poisoned uh, the Ecuadorian rainforest and caused so much death and devastation to indigenous communities and they have not gotten justice and the long-term attack on Donziger is a, is keeping any justice uh, from being provided to Ecuador. So that's one thing. Uh, then you also have um, just in general the, the implications of how this Adds to just the corporate uh, wealth control of the U.S. corporate system, uh, not corporate, no fucking, you know what I'm saying, court system, uh, and how, I mean, essentially you had, what is it, um, the New York, oh, fuck, I'm, I blank on all the court terms, the district attorney, right, or not, yeah, yeah appoint uh, his own. Watch it was the judge. Yeah. Definitely actually was the one, the, the district attorney refused the case. Mm-hmm. Which is why he appointed the private the private prosecutors in the first place. Correct. Yes, that's my bad. So there's that implication that uh, the judge was able to just get away with appointing uh, his own prosecutor and his own judge too. His, like essentially, essentially, Kaplan just set up his own prosecution of Dodgeinger. Yeah, and that even even though the so even so essentially he's acting honestly as a rogue judge in that instance because the U.S. government's refusing the case. They don't want to do it, but he's essentially saying, oh, I want to do it. So I'm just going to make my own trial. Yeah, and that essentially uh, we have a section of the justice system that is just, is acting at every step of the process on behalf of an oil company. Um, Very explicitly. But then also, and you may know more about this, but my understanding is that, I mean, my favorite thing to complain about, the corporate press, the New York Times, Washington Post, have been fairly silent on this story, right? Yeah, so the New York Times, uh, Fair, had an article. Where, so, like, 
They didn't actually cover, they, so from 2014 to 2020, they had zero stories on. So while this trial and this whole thing was going through, the zero, zero pieces, they had one, like, one or two pieces on it in 2020, and then they just wrote about it when he was, when he was charged. And one thing Donziger has noted uh, is that all along, uh, his apartment where he's been under house arrest is like three blocks from the New York Times headquarters. Yeah. So it's really, it would be really easy for them to interview him. So there's, of course, the neglect of the corporate press. Um, then also that my understanding is Biden could just end this? Or and he could. Marlin could? Well, now that, so Biden actually, now that, technically, now that he's actually, now he's actually been criminally convicted, he could actually pardon him. Also, I mean, clearly, clearly... I mean, there's only so much the DOJ can do, but also really, if they wanted to, they could they could have pressured either Judge Kaplan or Judge Preska into dropping the trial. I feel like, have they even spoken about it? No. Yeah, so there's, I mean, I feel like even, like, mentioning it would put a lot more scrutiny on Chevron. Although then again, in a lot of cases, that's all you would need in a lot of these instances, is just the bare mention of it from from a, from a major news outlet or from from the federal government yet. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, of course, the fact that that hasn't happened, I think, also has, and not to get too conspiratorial, but I, I'll say it, I think um, there's plenty of reason that I, I, I personally think this is just one of many examples of the New York Times or corporate presses uh, and now Biden's true um, priorities when it comes to the climate crisis. I think that, um, and I mean, this is a thing, again, I followed a bit of Don Ziegler's interviews and this is another thing that I think he's correct to highlight that this really is a litmus test for how serious um, Biden is about the climate crisis where there is this very obvious case of a fossil fuel company waging war against an uh, environmental justice uh, activist um, and lawyer, and all he has to do is mention it. Um, but I think I think the fact I feel confident saying that the fact that he's silent on it, as well as other things, you know, line three. Um, and all sorts of other shit, uh, really debunks, not that I ever believed, but I think really effectively debunks any claim Biden made while running for president that he is serious about the science of climate change. That even, might be a bit too off topic, but I, I, I had to... Like even within, I mean, I mean, clearly this is an instance where the, the implication for, for, for climate well, I mean, you can't let them get away with this. Right? Yeah. You have a, you have a foreign court find them guilty. I, it, just imagine. Okay, let's do like a let's do like a, a fun fun uh, a fun scenario here. Okay, imagine like a uh, let's imagine a Russian or Saudi Arabian state oil company uh, is found. They have investments in another country. They're found guilty in that country of um, they're found guilty. Uh, poisoning that community, they face a judgment. They refuse to pay the judgment. They vacate the country, and then they persecute that person in their in their country. Say a, a lawyer from from Saudi Arabia or from Russia who 
defended that community and found the judgment. They persecute them and throw them in jail. Do you really think the United States, that you don't, you don't think Secretary Blinken would then be, Secretary of State Blinken or, or the United States government in some capacity would be criticizing or saying something about oh, that? Oh, on Russia, he'd be, he'd be tweeting yeah. every fucking day. Saudi Arabia, mind you, we're, we're recording this. Actually, sorry, I don't want to sidetrack too much, but I think it's worth noting the day we're recording this is three years since Jamal True. Khashoggi was murdered. True. So I, yes, uh, yeah. I remain skeptical on if it was a Saudi company, how much the U.S. would really be uh, throwing a fit. But I think certainly I'm sure maybe some, a Russian I'm, company. In terms of journalists, definitely. In terms of major media companies, probably would because they That's definitely true. covered Khashoggi. But I mean, it's rather like the, the scenario there is, is that clearly if this was happening in another country, in a, in a similar scenario, that we would very clearly the U.S. government would very clearly know what it would say. And so it should be saying it here. But it's not. I mean, Chevron is Chevron's the second largest company by revenue and, and sort of by 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 size in terms of in terms of fossil fuel companies. The only one that's larger in the world is is the Saudi Aramco. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when the and also Chevron has Chevron has unlimited money. Like that's what they they know that they can essentially do. They can spend and continuously delay and persecute anyone who tries to hold them accountable. Uh, because they can just spend money forever in the court system to prevent any sort of actual accountability against them. Mm-hmm. So, also just in general, I think it's, it's I think it's a very bad uh, precedent to set in terms of just the general international system of allowing a company to ignore a judgment in another nation, sell its assets, and then use its own use its own host nation's legal system to escape accountability. I mean, just think about. For any, I mean, this is a globalized economy now. There's companies that have all around the world. Every nation has companies that have investments in other countries. And to think that this is sort of the precedent we're setting us that essentially, oh, you, you, you're liable, and oh, just sell everything and leave, and then use your country's legal system to evade accountability. Do like, do we think that's a good precedent to set in any any sort of instance? Gonna throw a wrench in the episode and say yes. I'm all for the precedent. No, obviously, I am not. Yes, it's a good thing. It's a good thing now that you can escape accountability by just going to your home nation. And I mean, also to think, wouldn't this just further set a precedent for sort of finding friendly, sort of friendly tax? Like already, companies do this in terms of, oh, I'm I'm a company that sells ninety percent of my products in the United States, but I'm not a United States company. I'm an Irish company, or I'm a I'm a Barbados company because for tax reasons. I, I'm also thinking in a sense, companies can certainly now also, they already do this, but because sort of more companies could try to think, oh, I'll just go find a country which has a, a easily fleeceable legal system like the United States and base their company there and then just, then just use that as a way to escape any sort of civil or criminal uh, liability. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's not ideal. <laughs> I'm trying to think, like, I feel like I have more thoughts, but I'm really just blanking right now because I'm not happy. No, I know. It's it's bad. I mean, it's certainly... It's I mean, it's, it's one of those things where when you say it out loud, you really do just sort of realize what a dystopian world we're living in. <laughs> well, I, and just... 
like like we said, they're they're very open and and, and this isn't like hidden. And I all you have to do is search Dodge Hunter trial, and then you're like, Whoop, and then you got stories. It's not as if it's not as if like me as a journalist, I'm having to like do the hard journalism of of parsing through court documents and going sort of doing actual investigative work. This was an investigative. This was just reading something and putting it into a putting it into a story. I think you so go the, to his Wikipedia page. To yeah, you go to his Wikipedia yeah. page. It's all there, and it's. I think it's pretty extensively like, um, because I remember what is it? I wrote like a thing about it just for my medium. It's not worth plugging, um, but just for context, <laughs> yeah, I wrote a thing, and I was like, uh, it, it was it was mostly about like an action I went to and not focused on the case, um, but. You know, I was like, okay, I should probably find some info about the case. And it's, you can literally, there, there are better sources for learning about this than Wikipedia. But but just the fact that y you look up Donzinger on Wikipedia and you can learn sort of every single detail of what we covered, I think is a testament to just how very public all of this info is. Um, and very not at all, um nuanced like like there's no you know and i'm all for like any topic you know nuance but th there's no nuance to it it's pretty it's very clearly just a ridiculous attack by chevron on donziger to avoid any accountability yeah no. so they made it too i mean they're like they clearly they they've clearly said that they hate him and are trying to destroy him which really i does it makes you think about whether about the charges again. In during the like trial, Preska just kept talking about like how good Chevron is, right? I know. Well, Kaplan, Kaplan was Kaplan, the one. Yeah, who, sorry. Kaplan would talk during, would say like how much he loved Chevron and how good they were for the U.S. economy and the the American worker. Which yeah. come on, no, <laughs> um. I don't want to, like, force us to stop talking about it, but I wonder... No, it's fine. I feel like we've said everything, like... Yes. And I do have a good transition I want to try out. Okay, all Which right. is that, um, speaking of dodging accountability, uh, the U.S. drone program is still Ooh. a thing. <laughs> um, and... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we've covered on the show, I actually think our last episode we talked about Biden's, not we, you and me, but um, on the show, I think, got into the drone strike a bit. But I think it's worth reiterating because uh, essentially, uh, did we cover this? No, we, did, we didn't get too much into it. But basically, uh, as Biden was leaving... I don't even want to say leaving Afghanistan. As, as U.S. troops were leaving Afghanistan, obviously you had the attack on the Kabul airport, um, and I don't think I need to summarize that, but screw it, I will, uh, that ISIS-K bombed—it was a suicide bombing, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was a ISIS suicide K. bombing locked by ISIS Khorasan. What? It yeah. was a suicide bombing um, by ISIS. Although, did you see the report that, like— a bunch of the people died just because the U.S. troops were shooting at the crowd afterwards. Yeah, there were some reports about that too. The thing is, that's only, I, I, that's probably them. It's hard because like they, 
it's weird because there's like there was like a few mainstream outlets that reported that initially, like the BBC, but then there just really hasn't been made up afterwards. Which, yeah, I mean, so my my thing is like, my guess is yeah, the U.S. troops probably shot at the crowd, and this it's not to like say oh like that's okay. I think this gets into part of why I did not fucking want U.S. troops in Afghanistan, which is that you have twenty year olds with guns in a country they don't understand, they get bombed. The U.S. is not going to really do anything for Afghanistan to keep Afghans safe. It just puts U.S. troops in harm's way. So I'm very glad that the withdrawal finally happened. I think I was not suspect. I didn't think it was going to happen. I think last time you were on the show, we talked about it, and I was supportive of it, but skeptical we would even see it. I, I want to get your take because I think you had the controversial take of potentially leaving troops there. We might want to we might want to get touched back on that. But anyways, sorry, I got very sidetracked. Point mm-hmm. is, uh, Kabul airport bombing. I think everyone knows about it. Um, One hundred seventy Afghans died. Thirteen. Oh yeah, thirteen U.S. troops. Sorry, what? Yeah, it was between twelve. I think it was twelve. Yeah. 12 U.S. troops? Yes. All right. Um, And um, so, of course, uh, after this happened, Biden, I would say, to keep his credibility, but um, in general, Biden Biden, um, vows revenge, launches a drone strike on what is supposedly um, ISIS member. Then I think it was like for it was revealed very shortly after that it that the drone strike killed ten people, uh, several children, the youngest of which was a two year old. I don't think it was confirmed. Yeah, no. So so that the fact that it killed civilians came out very quickly. And yes, that came out very quickly. What was? They still maintain, though, that there was an ISIS came operative. And they also said that there was a second bombing that when they launched the drone strike on this guy... Um... That there was a set... So they... So essentially, the, the initial original story was that... So they did the drone strike. They said that they took out two ISIS K operatives. And, but what they said was that, this, that there was a secondary explosion and that that's what killed... The civilians. And so, in the sense, they were saying that there were explosives in the car that they targeted that then exploded after the after the air drone strike, and that's what caused the civilian civilian casualties. So that was sort of the initial story that came up. And then, in a moment that I was not expecting, both the New York Times and Washington Post did really good reporting on the on the U.S. military. It still feels weird saying it, but. Yeah, both of them did their own independent. Uh, both of like these papers did their own independent investigations, uh, and what they found through. I think both of them talked to different people. Like some talked to this guy's neighbors and coworkers, and like ballistics experts or explosives mm-hmm. ac- experts. And essentially, what both papers found in their own reporting was that one, this guy had no connection to ISIS-K. He was an international aid worker. For a U.S.-based NGO. For a U.S.-based NGO. And then he was trying to actually go to the U.S. with his family. Um, 
to get away from the Taliban. So you have that, that um, there was no second explosion. And I'm trying to remember if there was other relevant info. But essentially that this, this was another drone bombing that killed civilians, was not uh, conducted in, in any serious way to get info on the person. And sorry, I want to add that I think this, this drone bombing happened like shortly after Daniel Hale, the drone whistleblower yeah. who revealed that like 90% of civilians mm-hmm. killed by the drone program in Afghanistan or 90% of victims of the drone program were civilians. And I think what was so interesting about this is that I've been following the drone program. Ethan, I assume you'd probably been following the drone program. Yes. The vast majority of people in the U.S. know nothing about the drone program. And I think this was the first time that a lot of people saw, one, just in general, what the war in Afghanistan has been, uh, including the withdrawal. I think it put a lot of people's attention where it wasn't otherwise for years now. Um, and then specifically this drone prop, uh, dr- this drone strike raised a lot of attention to the nature of the U.S. drone program. Yeah. And what's so disgusting is that for like two weeks after the bombing, the Department of Defense was just was very much claiming their story was true. And it was only after these two investigations happened and reporters kept asking about it that they admitted, yeah, we killed 10 civilians, including children. And, And the thing is that prior to these two investigations, putting a lot of scrutiny on the drone strike, Biden was vowing that we are going to keep bombing the country. Uh, we're going to keep using drone warfare. That just because U.S. troops are gone does not mean that we're done doing operations. It just means that it will be drone strikes, which I think was another thing I said the last time we had you on the yeah. show, that while I support um, a U.S. troop withdrawal, I'm also worried that that means you're going to get drone strikes that no one pays attention to. And I, I'm interested. I don't. I assume that Biden has not given up on this whole continuing bombing campaigns of the country. I think he's sort of not talking about it now. I think he's pulling the "let's let people forget about this before we start up again." But I'm. My guess is that yeah, we're probably going to keep bombing this country even after this happened. Yes. So I'm gonna, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll get into some some more of the drone strike, and then I'll talk about sort of the, the future of it right now in Afghanistan. So, and also the, the DOD, like, and the U.S. government said in the initial aftermath of the strike, there was a righteous strike, and that they were celebrating sort of this initially. But I, I just blow my mind. I, I know. Intelligence, intelligence gathering is difficult. I'm not reducing the, the difficulty of the job that uh, some of the, that, that, that they have to do. However, how is it that the New York Times and the Washington Post were able to find out within a few days of the strike that this guy had no connection whatsoever? How is it that there, without the without the massive resources and the the intelligence network that the United States has in Afghanistan, 
able to determine that this individual has no connection whatsoever was a completely innocent bystander. How did they able to determine this? And yet somehow the DOD was that. I, I think it was a it was a rash decision. So we had we had the drone, we had the bomb, the suicide bombing take place at the airport. Clearly, we're scarred by it. Clearly, in a sense, the DOD this is a definitely a, a hit to the sort of the, again this is a hit to the prestige of the U.S. military. It is a sort of a it's stunning, obviously, to have this sort of happen. And so they were searching for they were looking for something to do, in order to sort of save face and sort of punish, uh, punish those responsible. And so they were searching and they found what obviously they probably found what looked like a good target and might have not done the full work of that typically would have gone into before a drone strike was called. But I just I'm they so struggling. For, sorry to cut you off. They surveilled him for like. Was it thirty hours? I might. Yeah, I might, but like, how is it that time. they do that? I, I know, but how is it that you do that and you don't like? How is it that you determine that this guy is an ISIS operative? I just don't understand. Like that's just that's that's just a massive failure of intelligence to determine this is a legitimate target. I just, I this that's my point. And this still, I don't I don't understand how the how all parties involved determined that this was a legitimate target. And also. Even once the U.S. government, even even once the DOD admitted, which they should have done so from the start, admitted that they were wrong and that it was knowledge of Machaca and that they apologized with, with the shitty apology still. They then said that they weren't going to do anything, that they weren't going to hold, like there was going to be no repercussions for it's anyone involved. by in the story. intelligence. Like so, like so, the people who got the intelligence, nothing happens to them. The person or the strike, like there's nothing. Like I'm not obviously, I'm not like saying, oh, we need to like hold massive show trials of all the people involved. But just from like again, like I, like I did last time, just from like a practical military perspective, you would think that if you make a mistake and you target civilians, that just from a practical perspective, that you would think maybe we should like examine how that. Let what led up to that that mistake and hold people accountable for that. Well, and again, I sorry, I want to reiterate while because I agree, and that the the most high profile drone program person who who has been punished by Joe Biden is Daniel Hale for revealing yeah. that these that the the way the intelligence works is super flawed and causes civilian casualties all the goddamn time. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting heated, as you can probably hear, more so than the Donziger thing. But sorry, what were you saying? No, yeah, that, that's essentially yeah. And, and so we held, we held the sort of one person that's helped us sort of understand the why the drone failure, why the drone program has such a high rate of failure. We held that one person accountable by sending them to prison for at least four years. So it's just terrible. And it, it, you have this aid worker. He's an aid worker working for the U.S. How do you determine that he is an ISIS operative? I just don't understand that. I, I, as someone who's involved in this field, I just don't understand how one can determine that. I, unless you're making, and you shouldn't be, but unless they, they were making a rash decision. Like, clearly, they were searching for some way to, in a sense, portray strength. So I, I really think it's, it should be, should, we should examine, honestly, like, we should really, like, think as a nation, if the way that we portray strength after, after sort of a devastating loss is to attack people then is that that's 
not great. Really, it should make us think, sort of, of how our how our military and how our government sort of thinks it has to portray strength is by after we after war attack, we have to just attack randomly and 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 sort of strike out. Well, yeah, and I mean, no, I I do think, and I think a lot of this was Biden's approval ratings were plummeting. I mean, he was really sailing along for a while, uh, and then the withdrawal happened. And I was listening to some coverage, and I forget what it what it was, but there was an interesting point, and I. I I, I always worry that I sound like one of those people who's like the media, the media. But I, I, I think, you know, especially with foreign policy, a lot of the ways that journalists contribute to the very, I think, pro-war culture of the U.S. fuels that culture. And sorry, so the point that was made was that it really is a testament to the role of the press uh, in these wars that withdrawing from Afghanistan was a very popular demand in the U.S. I mean, it, overwhelmingly, uh, the American public wanted it. And how often you have an overwhelming majority of the, the American public agreeing across mm -hmm. the political spectrum. And then Biden does it, and you had all of these... Um, you know, op-eds by people with invested interests in interventionism yes. uh, being published by the press uh, saying that, oh, essentially saying without saying, we should stay in Afghanistan forever. And being like, oh, this is a disaster. And it's be and, and hinting that it's, oh, it's because Biden's leaving that this is a problem. I, I think Biden botched the withdrawal and I think Trump also set him up for failure. I think both of them screwed up. But I, it, the, a lot of these, um, I think, you know, op-eds weren't talking like that. They were essentially saying that, oh, the U.S. just leaving Afghanistan is the problem. Bullshit. So, so the point that this, this coverage I was listening to was making, that it's, it's really a testament to the role of the press uh, and their coverage or lack of coverage of these wars that you had this massively popular demand and Biden actually does it against all odds and the way it's covered and yes, the way it's done, but a lot of ways the way it's covered causes his approval rating to plummet. Yeah. Uh, and then these troops die, which I think people are absolutely, like these were people who were younger than me and I'm pretty young. Like these were people who were, a lot of the troops who died were infants. They were they were literally like fucking crawling on the ground in diapers when this war started. And now they're dying in it. And I think that absolutely that is something that you blame the president for. I don't think it's just and, and I don't mean that Biden's Biden got them killed. I, I don't I think there's a lot more to it than that. But yeah, of when when that happens, a lot of people, their instinct is going to be the president got them killed. Uh, and Biden knew that, and he had already been suffering, and this happens, and so what does he do? He decides blood for blood, which I would say is, is exactly, it's a smaller version of the whole response to 
9-11 that got us into the war on terror in the first place. I mean, it's so interesting because this is a month ago, and I feel like it's, you know, it's not the main coverage anymore, and it's it's never going to be the main coverage again, most likely, but I do think that, I mean, it's such a defining thing, and I think, you know, you would think that all of this would, as you said, be something where you think, like, what is the U.S. doing in the world? But I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of people probably are maybe going to have this stick with them. But I think in terms of leaders and press who contributed to uh, such ridiculously terrible foreign policy over the last 20 years, they're not... The, the people who have the have a lot of power to really change the direction we're going in right away are just continuing. They're not taking the lessons. And it's it's the public that I think are, I actually have seen a lot of people taking the lessons, and I hope that people will apply them. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's just super gross that essentially um, – we're probably going to see some type of escalation of another conflict um, for all the same reasons that we ended up in Afghanistan and Iraq forever. Um, yeah, it's it's just really fucking disappointing. Well, it's already dropped off um, in terms of press coverage, which which was which was what happened. I mean, anyways, during during the conflict, there was barely any coverage, and then there was a lot of coverage during the withdrawal, and then it goes back down to no coverage. It's just the nature of the press. I. They're, they're, they're pretty bad at covering conflicts. Um, and also, in honesty, like, they just they just don't. I mean, they're, they're, if, even when, and this is what's sort of amazing to me, is that the U.S. has such a such a massive global presence, and yet so many people in the U.S. don't know anything about, about it. And also, there's barely any coverage about it. Yeah. But well, that's just sort of how it always is. I think it was Quincy Institute that did a study about how, like, between CBS, ABC, and NBC News, um, between those three networks combined, uh, Afghanistan, the, the, the war in Afghanistan got less than five minutes of coverage in 2020. Yeah. And I think that that was, like, Actually, a very relevant year for Afghanistan. Um, I mean, 2020 is the year that you have the entire peace deal that sort of led to this and to now this final conclusion, and yet they don't even cover it. That, that's sort of the thing I'm talking about. I mean, you can have you can the U.S. having over 5,000 soldiers in the country, having an extensive drone campaign, and having a extensive security ties, and also build like working on an uh, working on a peace treaty, and yet. The major media outlets are like, oh well, you know, well, like, well, maybe spend like 30 seconds on it. Oh, but withdrawal? Oh, oh, withdrawal. Oh, we got, we got to like spend all day. We got to like spend, we got to have every single, every single person who ever advocated for the Iraq war on our show to, uh, to talk about. Yeah, no, also just the amount of people who like started the war. Who have been I, I know. Reflecting well, that's the thing it. too, is, is that somehow the conclusion is now going to be is that we lost the war because we left, which is the exact same conclusion which we had from Vietnam afterward. Well, not exactly, but like the popular sort of conception among certain uh, certain areas of the foreign policy world was that 
oh, we lost Vietnam because we left the war, which, okay. It's going to be the same. They're, like, trying to make that the conclusion. Is that the reason why Afghanistan was bad was because we left. And, and, you know, this is also coming from someone who initially was wanting to keep no longer. I, I've seen how quickly the Afghan government collapsed. And I, I also think a big reason why they collapsed so quickly was, I mean, the U.S. cut them out of the peace negotiations, and we were essentially just bilaterally negotiating with the Taliban. And at that point, really, we were just recognizing them, not officially, but come on. Like, if you're going to, in a, in a three-party conflict, negotiate between only two parties, you're essentially saying that the other party has no legitimacy. And the Taliban, the reason why, the reason why the Afghan government collapsed so quickly was that the Taliban had working behind the scenes for for over a year, uh, sort of devising agreements with regional with regional governments and with, with militias to, in a sense, hand in their arms and sort of just peel off. Mm-hmm. So the the Taliban had essentially already worked out worked out their takeover long before they they launched their offensive. I mean, there, there's actually very little fighting in that sort of week. It was mostly just the Taliban rolls up, most of the people surrender, and not much happens. So. I mean, the Afghan government at that point had basically no legitimacy amongst its population. And I mean, also most of the, yeah. It, so at this point, I, I think the only thing that was keeping sort of the, the Afghan government from collapsing was that small US troop presence. But at that point, they still have no legitimacy. Well, I also. But if the conclusion is that, oh, yeah, you know, just the US just keeps troops there forever. No, and, and all these, I kept seeing these sort of, these, these sort of arguments. Oh, the U.S. has has an active military has a military presence in Germany and South Korea. Well, for one thing, Germany and South Korea, the vast majority of the population does want the U.S. there, and debate of all times on that's, Korea. <laughs> it depends. It, sometimes the U.S. Germany does things. Korea Germany definitely Korea. does. Korea, Korea does. The Korean government definitely wants it. Well, the Korean so, government, I, I. Sorry, that we, we don't have to sidetrack too much. <laughs> but for one thing, they're not in an act. They're not, while the U.S. military had been off, low, suffering very low casualties, all, any casualties in the last sort of few years of the conflict, they were still in an active combat zone. And also, we were propping up a very unstable and with very, very low legitimacy government, whereas I mean, there's no insurgency. There's no, like, alternative government in germany or south korea and a lot of these places so well i yeah i mean one thing that I, I remember reading and that i think is relevant like for people who who are like oh biden should have stayed i don't think he had a choice like i i mean uh, the the taliban was mobilized and if, i think if biden had actually committed to saying you would have seen way more than 13 troops getting killed which of course i mean yeah you could if if the taliban waged an attack on the u.s and killed a lot of u.s troops you can have the response to send more and keep fighting with the taliban forever for however long and the u.s probably could have kicked them back for a bit longer but but ultimately why the fuck would you want to do that i mean i i don't think um and f- fuck, I, I mean, I, I, I can just keep quoting coverage I saw because, uh, you know, for a month, and you probably too, we're just 
reading different takes and watching different things, there was, like, one, um, like, I think Marine who had served in Afghanistan who was saying, like, essentially all the people who are saying, like, stay one more day, stay one more year, uh, are saying one more Marine dies before we go. And, and I think that is, the Taliban was, re was ready for that. The Taliban was very ready for it. If we had stayed, more, more troops than the ones that died would have died. And you have two choices there. You either know that that is a risk and you withdraw before that can happen, or you decide, all right, that's the risk. We're going to let these troops get killed by the Taliban, and then we're going to send more. And I, I don't. And then extend the conflict further. I, it's, yeah. yeah. And I don't yeah. think anyone, except for people who benefit from extending wars monetarily, uh, yeah, would want the second option. Yeah, but I, but now there's there's like there's no there's no change. Like again, like just like we were saying with the drone program, there's like there's no. If you essentially, if 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 during this period, if all you have are people who advocate for the Iraq War and people who who, if, if you have people who started and basically failed in the initial portion of the war, and you have the, these are the same people that have been going on and are essentially seen as our arbiters of what is right and wrong in terms of Afghanistan. There's no change. Like that's the thing. It's like this again from a practical perspective. If the U.S. essentially is going to take the conclusion that, oh, we lost because we stayed, but we didn't stay. If that's the conclusion, they're not going to learn anything. Like, you're not going to make any reforms or any sort of fundamental reorientation. I mean, uh, there's a journalist at The Intercept named, uh, I feel bad, I'm probably going to butcher his name, but Murtaza Hussein. Wait, who? Murtaza Hussein. Oh, yeah, 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 I love him. Yeah, he's great. But... You know, he's been talking, like, again, even just from a practical perspective, if there's no, basically, introspection amongst, within the Pentagon or within sort of the major media outlets, we're going to do the exact same thing on whatever future conflict we get involved in. Yeah. And, I mean, my theory, um, I mean, we're going to, we're, I think we're, we're headed towards a conflict with China. I, I, I refuse to cover China on the show, by the way. This is a controversial take. Um, but I, <laughs> I need to read a lot more stuff before I do a show on the topic. Um, but I think you and I would probably agree that that's going to certainly escalate before it simmers down. It's, it's um, The U.S. Is, is building up. Its, its presence in, in East Asia, and certainly the, the withdrawal from Afghanistan is, is also partially about a complete reorientation towards 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 uh, East Asia, towards the South China Sea. And the thing is, I think really the centerpiece of it's actually going to be Taiwan, but I don't want to sidetrack us too much. No, but yeah. I, I think the main thing, I, I think you're not going to have a conflict over like just there's going to be like basically like broader sort of like there's they're, they're going to be like trying to get countries in their sphere like the u.s and china are going to be competing over thailand they're going to be competing over vietnam in terms of trying to get countries in a sense more so in their camp but that's not going to provoke an armed conflict but i think really where you could actually the thing that could and would most likely produce an armed conflict between the united states and china is taiwan that i think is true 
Uh, okay, okay, we we should honestly do an episode, but I don't want it to be this episode be- because um, one, I need to read a lot more before I actually start talking off the cuff about this, um, and two, because I don't want this to be two hours of me editing. That said, I do want to add one more thing where, like, ProPublica has a series um, that is not at all focused on China, uh, but that really did... I, I was skeptical that a serious war between China could happen for a while, and reading these ProPublica articles really changed my view because what the ProPublica articles get into, it was like from 2019, I think I read them, and I think they've continued, but uh, they've done a lot of really interesting reporting into how the U.S. Navy um, basically is super under-trooped. <laughs> That's probably not the word. But basically, you have all of these ships. The Navy keeps investing in new technology, and you have all of the, I guess, captains reporting to the higher-up officers being like, hey, like, we're super overworked and like not well-trained in this technology, and you need to do something about this because we keep getting into crashes and in, in the Pacific. Uh, and this is the thing that you've had, like, these U.S. Navy ships crash, crash into, like, Japanese ships because you have, like, the lower down, like, people in the Navy reporting to the higher up people being like, this, we, this, we are not well trained, we don't have enough people to be, like, and I think the U.S. in general should not have, like, two-thirds of its Navy in the South China Sea, um, but th- that's a whole other thing, but, but anyways... Where I'm getting at is that it's a really interesting reporting in how the Navy is super disorganized and where it changed my mind that it might be more likely that we get into a war with China is I think we're I think there's a significant risk that as we keep expanding uh, the naval presence in the South China Sea and keep getting into these just fucking hazardous accidents um just that without a conflict i think it's only a matter of time before you actually have like um you know before the u.s basically stumbles its way into a larger confrontation with um china um and i don't know if i'm explaining it well but um yeah essentially the mix of we have a bunch of ships in the Pacific and that there is like a like a complete um, mismanagement um, and disregard uh, for for these ships like operations um, I, I think makes me very concerned that it's only a matter of time before you just fuck up and um, cause some type of international problem. That said, I think the future, uh, the the two main things that I'm looking at now, that, and I don't want to say that the war on terror and, like, forever wars are over. I think they're still going, but I think that, I think that, um, yeah, you're definitely going to have more escalations with China. Uh, and then Africa. I mean, I... And this is a thing that I'm also, 
I've been trying to do a whole episode on this too, the buildup of AFRICOM and counter-terror is like now there's, it's basically like a lot of the troops who are doing like counter-terror stuff in the Middle East are now being reshuffled around uh, and those operations are happening in like the Horn of Africa and you have a lot of training of, of um, military forces throughout Africa. And I, th I think that's going to be another thing that the U.S. is putting its resources to while repeating all the same disasters uh, that caused uh, our interventions in the, in the Middle East to be so harmful and convoluted. So that's the end of my long tangent about the future of U.S. foreign policy. Yes, but we we should do we should do an episode when you're when you're ready on uh, on on China and Taiwan and sort of the uh, the buildup. Yeah, um, yeah, we're 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 acquiring like the info. Um, I'll, I'll let you know when I'm ready for that. Amassing the intelligence. Yeah. Um, no, that is, I mean, that, and I probably should cover the pandemic more, um, but those are, those are, like, the two things where I'm, like, everyone is giving their take on it, and I think if you're a journalist, like, to some extent, yeah, these are important things. If you can inform people about them, you should, but I also, like, Sometimes I don't think every single person should just jump right into the conversation. I'm going to, with these two topics, I want to make sure that, like, I'm not just fucking rambling and hoping I get it right. Um, is there anything else you wanted to get into before we wrap? No, I think that, that was good. We got into the, we got into Afghanistan, which I've been wanting to do, and we got into the, in the Dossinger, so it's a good show. Beautiful. All right. Well, do you want to plug where people can find you before? Yes. Um, so if uh, if your listeners want to listen to uh, listen, uh, Gideon has been on the show. We're still doing the reviews, uh, the review of Squared show. If you want to find us, uh, you can find us at. Let me just make sure I'm doing the right app. <laughs> uh, you can find us at Review Squared on uh, on Twitter, and then we're at Review Squared on. Um, on Spotify and wherever you guys get your podcasts. Amazing. All right. Well, thank you again for coming on the show, and we'll have to have well, you Well, thank back. you, Sam, for having me on. Always happy. Do it.